What to Know podcast explores best practices, innovation, and latest trends with industry experts with an eye toward helping you, the listener, stay ahead of the ever-changing marketing and communications landscape. Good afternoon. This is Aaron Strout, the CMO of W2O and host of the What to Know podcast show. And I have a uh, wonderful guest today, Sarah Hughes, who is the Senior Vice President and Head of Biostatistics. I love that title at GSK. Welcome, Sarah. Hi, it's good to be here. Well, it's good to have you. And um, I knew when we did our prep call that I was really going to enjoy this conversation today. Uh, part of it is because your background, part of it is just, you know, where we are in the world right now. I do like to start with sort of where people came from and, and I wanted to do that with you. I have some guests where you're like, how did you get here? You seem like you are a pretty straight path forward, which is uh, always, you know, it, it's probably a little easier than some of us, right? Um, you have a clear passion for statistics and mathematics. It started early to that end. You have a bachelor's of science in mathematics from the University of Manchester and a master of science in statistics from the Uni- University of Kent. So I want to know, like, is this a gene that runs in your family? You know, someone that's got all, you know, physicians, mathematicians, or is this something that you discovered on your own? Tell us a little bit about that. Well, so my father was a PhD chemist. And so growing up, um, we were very much a household where science was was the thing. That was what you should do. And that was uh, what we should be paying attention to in school. And then both my parents actually were... Um, you know, part of their life principles that included a strong desire to help others. And so with a combination of those two, the next sibling came along and did a medically related degree at university and into a hospital afterwards. And I came along and I thought, well, actually, I'm really interested in being a doctor too, but I can't be the same as my older siblings. That's far too boring. I need to be a little bit rebellious thought math stats um, that's something I can do I quite enjoy it let me go off and do that but then made a beeline pretty much straight from there to the type of math statistics medical statistics that um, was an area that I thought the application of maths is, is somewhere where I can really help people so as cheesy as that sounds that's where it came from it's not cheesy at all it sounds very altruistic and uh, I think we need more people like you in the world Uh, And it's a good segue to my next question, which is you have in your title head of biostatistics. And I would love to know, like, what does a day in the life look like for you? I'm sure that's a bigger than a bread box answer, but give us a little bit of a a thumbnail. Yeah. So, well, there's, there's never any standard day, which, which keeps it interesting, but I certainly spend a good chunk of my time working with the head of R and D and his uh, senior leaders at what we call our governance boards. And what do we mean by that? It's reviewing all of the plans that individual teams bring forward, teams who are working on drugs that could potentially become medicines. And we take a look at their plans and say, are they good enough? Are they applying the best cutting edge methods they could be? Are they thinking about this in the best way that they could be? And how does this opportunity stack up compared to other areas that we could invest in, given that there's always more good ideas than budget to go around. Is there, does this have a bigger unmet medical need than this? Does it have a higher or lower probability of success than this other opportunity? So we look at the plans together and you'll have the senior physicians thinking about that from, you know, the, the, the insights of a, uh, medicine. I'll look at it from, from the, tr- the training of a statistician being taught to think 
in a data-driven way and making data-driven decisions. And so bring those insights to the board discussions. And they're fascinating. That's It's a real honor actually to, to, to work on those boards, um, but certainly takes up a lot of my time and lots of pre-reading documents to go with it. And I guess another key part of um, the role after that is from all of the things I learn through those interactions, it then helps me understand where do I need to build capability in my group? Where could we be even better? Where we, could we consistently have better ideas, more cutting edge ideas to ensure that we are apl applying them when teams bring them forwards to those boards for review? And I think probably most people, unless they work for a large pharma or a biotech company, don't ever think about some of those decisions that go into it. And we'll get into a little bit of just how many people you have on your team. We'll talk more about the R&D um, element in a second. One of the things that struck me, and I think I've seen this a number of times before, but as I was doing my research on you, uh, GSK is a science-led global healthcare company. And you talked about science, probably the most important time in our history that we've ever been thinking about science. You're focused on researching and developing a broad range of innovative products. So why is it so important right now to trust science beyond the obvious of, we have some folks that maybe are teaching us that maybe science isn't as important as it is. A lot of people with very strong opinions, but the problem is gut instinct, strong opinions, not based on data can often lead us down the path of bad decisions. Um, but those opinions can turn out to be wrong. I liked maths at school because the answers were always in the back of the book, as I used to like to say. There was, a, there was only one correct answer. And so long as you were able to figure it out, you knew you were right. And um, then learning the language of statistics, it helped you combine all the data so far. And, and again, there was one correct answer of this is what the data is most likely to be telling us. And then it can also tell you how certain or uncertain you are about what the data is telling us. Am I really confident that the data is clear, that, that we know what it's saying, or are we only certain that it's in this sort of general range? Um, and so, again, that language of uncertainty through statistics has really helped um, us understand what the truth is and how much uncertainty there is behind those opinions that, that are held. And so that for me has been, I think, a real um, contrast to some of the things that we see in the media these days around um, those strong opinions, not based on so much fact and something that uh, is my language. Well, I thank you for that answer. And that, that actually is a nice way to really bring it to the forefront in a time of such uncertainty to have the ability to be precise and to really understand at least know what we can know, right? We still have, for instance, with COVID, we have a lot of things that are going unanswered, but if we trust what we know is evidence and we know that we can see the, the path forward, then why wouldn't we want to do more of that? So one of the other things I want to touch on is GSK's mission is to really help people do more, feel better, live longer, which, you know, feels noble. Um, but I think you really do a pretty good job at, at living that uh, that must feel good to, to work at a place like that, especially during a time like this. It's funny, I guess a lot of the listeners won't be aware um, that, that in the pharmaceutical industry, medical research generally, um, there's a lot of work required um, before a, a potential medicine even gets to human clinical trial tests. Um, there's a lot of work um, and many opportunities for failure before that. 
even when a potential medicine arrives at the point in which we start testing it in healthy volunteers and in patients and so on, even at that point, there's still a 90% failure rate. 90% of the potential medicines we test at that point will fail before it ultimately becomes a real medicine um, that we can make available to, to patients. And so actually a lot of the time um, I've spent on, on projects, my team have spent on projects, you end up spending sometimes years, but certainly weeks, months on a, a project that ends up failing. And that can be quite disheartening sometimes, but the occasional time that you have, the, it is a privilege, the privilege to work on something that does eventually become a medicine Actually, it's really humbling. And I can think of two or three medicines during my career that I'm truly humbled to have been a part of because whether it's, for example, a, a cancer treatment where patients have run out of options, they've got no other choices left. And without this, you know, their, their expected survival would be six months. This buys them more time until we can develop even more medicines to give them even more time whether it's, you know, a medicine that um, is suppressing, um, it's those rare, they are relatively rare, the, the times when you see the true achievement of what you've done. But when it happens, that really is fantastic. Well, it's a great way to think about that, because, you know, there are very few of us that have that opportunity to truly make people healthier, to make their lives better or extend them. And I think a lot of people don't have the understanding of just how much goes into this. And I think we'll talk a little more about the R&D, but that was a good statistic that, you know, for every 10% that makes it, 90% don't. So that's a lot of effort that you have to invest in. You talked about your team a little bit. And so I think in doing my research, um, you're part of a team that, and, and probably oversee a lot of these folks of, approximately 550 statisticians, programmers, and data scientists. That feels like a lot of firepower. Like I know how much goes into that. That felt even big to me. Talk a little bit about why so many. I mean, that, that that's comforting in a lot of ways to me to know that there are that many people that are really thinking and doing the things that you're doing. Yeah, um, I'd probably pinpoint a couple of different stages where there was a real explosion in terms of the number of statisticians and programmers and so on in the pharmaceutical industry and in medical research generally. The first was off the back of the thalidomide disaster in the 1960s that some of your listeners will be very familiar with. But for those who weren't, it was a, a medicine that was prescribed quite often to pregnant women for morning sickness, but resulted in really disastrous birth defects. At the time, the regulations for developing new medicines were very different and um, much less rigorous. The expectations were raised very substantially about the level of testing that needed to occur before a medicine became available. And so, you know, in the first few years after that, there were regulations about the amount of uh, clinical testing in healthy volunteers and in patients, and then further regulations around the quality of those clinical trials, really achieving a minimum level of robustness to ensure we really had a good understanding of the efficacy, the effects of the drug and the potential side effects and so on. And as a result of those regulations, there was one requirement where actually there, there was, uh, it was um, 
essential that there be, it was mandated that there be at least one statistician on every clinical trial that takes place. Um, and that's true across all the pharmaceutical industry. And as a, as a result of that, there was a huge, there was an exponential growth, not surprisingly, in, in terms of the number of statisticians involved. And they could really help um, provide clarity on how big a, cl a clinical trial needed to be in order to get a clear answer, a black or white answer, not a gray fuzzy answer to, a, to the question in, in mind. And that was really the first role. And then collecting the data and analyzing it and talking about the patterns that we saw in the data much more clearly. And then over time, have started to add value in a lot of different ways. And most recently, I think the second big explosion was, you know, we live in a world of huge amounts of data now. We're going through a data revolution. Um, and you know, if you if you did, if it would be easy to sit there and look at all of the data and say, I don't know what to do with all of this. How can I change, turn all of that data into knowledge, into insights? There's just so much data now. That's true in the clinical trial space, in, in the preclinical testing we do with genetics and genomics and so on. There's so much data now that we have to try and harness and turn that into knowledge, into insights. Well, thank you for explaining that. And we will talk a little bit about the tech and the data coming together in a minute. I wanna ask you a question that you spurred something in my thinking and part of the issue with some of these clinical trials today and particularly around COVID vaccine trials is the fact that uh, blacks or people of color are significantly underrepresented in that. So, you know, is there a role that, you know someone like you or the team with these statisticians can look at and say, or, or is part of your process to say, look, we can get away with X even if this doesn't represent the population. So actually, uh, I think it's fair to say that, again, across uh, medical research, um, we've had a, a significant challenge for many years ensuring that the clinical trials we do um, represent the entirety, the totality of the people, the patients who are going to receive that medicine. And we're still learning about why that has been such a challenge. Some of it is cultural, for sure, um, whereby some types of uh, uh, cultures are more um, wary of clinical trials than others. Um, some, some challenges around socioeconomic difficulties have also contributed. There's a whole variety of reasons why we've experienced historically such a challenge in trying to ensure good representation of all, um, not just um, ethnic um, uh, uh, cultures, but, but diversity in so many different ways in our clinical trials. It's a, top, it's a, it's a hot topic, um, not just during COVID-19, but generally at the moment with the regulators, FDA and EMA in Europe, uh, across the industry more generally, um, everyone is trying to, to find ways in which to increase the representativeness of our clinical trials. Sometimes we have to set up clinical trials dedicated to just studying particular groups of patients, those typically underrepresented in our bigger clinical trials. Sometimes we have to do that, uh, but it, it is a challenge for sure. Well, thank you for going down that path and I do want to talk about something that's a fun or hopefully an exciting question for you. And uh, one of the things I noticed in your bio was that you do a fair amount of advising to some of your uh, R&D groups within the organization. And I know 
this is probably the most fun and probably the trickiest to talk about. But uh, I think you said that this is one that sort of, you know, it gives you the most light and the most excitement in your job. So tell us a little bit about what's got you excited right now in this role. <laughs> That's a great question to have. Thank you. Um, I, I talked a little earlier about the fact that I, I, it feels to me like the world is going through a data revolution at the moment, you know, was that 150 years or so ago, we started an industrial revolution and then we had the computer revolution um, in the late uh, 2000s. And now it feels like we're in the middle of a data revolution. And, um, you know, one industry that's already been completely changed by this is actually the American baseball industry. And I don't know if some of the listeners have uh, seen the, the film Moneyball, uh, where Brad Pitt played the lead role. Um, but it's a fantastic story that illustrates much better than I can explain, actually, how data and data-driven decision-making completely revolutionized how decisions were made in the baseball industry. And, and that wasn't to say that the old approach to making decisions was terrible. Um, you know, experts were paid a lot of money to figure out how to select baseball league. And they did it well. They had a track record of doing it really well. But what this, but in in the baseball, in the Moneyball film, sorry, what uh, the, the story went that this um, team that was really struggling, um, not doing well at all, financial difficulties, couldn't afford to pay uh, to buy expensive players, hired an economist, um, which I like to think is very a, a close partner of uh, statistics, and. Um, tried to take quite a different approach to player selection. And what they used was instead of the, the typical approach that the pickers used of, did that guy have a beautiful swing or, you know, did he look good when he was out uh, on the field? They actually started using data to analyze how well um, they hit, how well um, they pitched. And, and, and it, they started coming to really different uh, insights about which players were really the best and they started picking according to these new insights and shot up the league um, they didn't win that particular year but came out really close um, as a result actually the Red Sox uh, started to take the same approach and now everybody does and it was such a brilliant story about data revolution my group are championing an initiative uh, we call it QDM, quantitative decision making. But in in essence, it's trying to foster that same approach to decision making, that same data driven approach. And again, it's not to say that the old approach was wrong. It's just that in this data world that we live in now, we can make decision making even better uh, by um, by experience that sometimes our gut instincts can really play tricks on us. Um, so even if you think you know the right thing to do, um, our brains aren't always hardwired to do sort of integrate, you know, multiple parts of uh, data together to, to get the correct insight. But computers can do that for you. Statistics can do that for you. Um, and so that's what we're really driving. Um, shift a culture so that let's let's take the clinical trial um, arena for example that we were just talking about we want every team when they're setting up a new clinical trial to define that really clearly define the success criteria for that trial once that's defined 
We also ask them to calculate the probability of success of that trial based on the data that we've already got so far. Because again, in this data world, we've got that data at our fingertips and can use it in new powerful ways. So we can calculate the probability of that trial being successful. Then we can also go away and calculate the probability of success for the, for the potential medicine becoming a real medicine if that, those trial success criteria are met. So in other words, how much does the probability of success go, go up by, increase by if that trial is successful? And then you can start to see, well, is that a useful clinical trial to run? Does the probability of success go up by a lot? If so, that sounds like a really useful trial. If it only increases a little bit, if you're only reducing the risk a little bit, then you start to think ah, that's not that might be interesting scientifically, but it's not really bringing forwards that potential medicine much more towards making it a real medicine. And so that is quite a different way of thinking, quite a big culture change that we're trying to drive. Actually, we won um, the Royal Statistical Society in the UK uh, gave us an award for best statistical industry innovation um, for that whole uh, revolution that we're trying to drive at GSK. I, I love your answer on so many different levels. Uh, for starters, the whole money ball analogy. And so just to add a little more context. So where I live in the world right now is about 20 minutes away from where the Oakland A's play, which is the team that Michael Lewis wrote the original book that then the movie was based on. And funny thing, I'm a Red Sox fan. I grew up in Boston. Billy Bean, who is the GM, the general manager uh, of the Oakland A's, and what's interesting is Oakland A's have always been what's called a small market team, $50 million team for payroll. Red Sox, Yankees, Dodgers have all been closer to 175 to 225 million. And so Billy Bean had to basically be the David versus the Goliath and using statistics helped with that. Yeah. I love the analogy. Like if you think about the, all of the real world data that's available and how you sort of translate that into what you're doing. And we will talk about that in just a second, because I do want to talk about the tech and the data. And it's funny. It's funny, because, you know, as someone who really knows nothing about baseball, I should have got you to explain baseball. No, but you know what? I, that was part of what I enjoyed is, first of all, listening to a Brit who's a, you know, a science and, and data nerd uh, who did such an <laughs> elegant job at doing that. And usually I try to avoid the sports analogies because I'm told as you know, as a guy, don't do that. But uh, you brought it up and it's, it's really a perfect analogy. So I love the way you described it. Part of why we're doing this podcast today is around an award or an, um, something that you've been recognized for as GSK. Last year, you cracked Science Magazine's top 20 employers list, which is a huge deal. Uh, you are number 16. This year, we won't reveal it yet. Although by the time the podcast comes out, I think we'll have the final number. Uh, you've moved up in the rankings, which is always nice. Talk about how important that is to GSK and as, as an organization. Actually, it's hugely important. One of the cultural pillars we believe is critical for our success is around recruiting outstanding people, outstanding talent. And if you're not seen as a company that does fantastic work, that does drive incredible innovation, then it's very hard to recruit that outstanding talent. And we want to make sure that uh, globally we, we can achieve that. And when we looked at, at the uh, improved rankings this year, the, the, the increase was largely driven by positive responses in a couple of key areas. One was around 
uh, GSK being an innovative leader um, because we are really trying through our governance boards that I was talking about, but really trying to draw, ensure we implement cutting edge approaches um, for all of our work. But also the other area that drove the increase was around treating employees with respect. Um, you know, the old fashioned corporate um, philosophy or, or stereotype is, you know, a very hierarchical position that you're allowed to express an opinion. Now, of course, that stereotype is out of date and old. But where we want to get to is a place where every individual, however senior or junior, whatever their cultural background, whatever their ethnicity, their identity, um, their ability, feels that they can bring their whole selves to work and that their opinions will be listened to. Because often um, the questions that someone asks and they fear that it might be a stupid question turn out to uncover a really important issue. And of course, if you don't bring your whole self to work, you're never going to be able to perform the best that you can do. So they're the areas where we've really tried to drive an improvement. So I'm really pleased to see how it's been reflected in the ranking. Well, congratulations. And it, it really is great news and you are doing great things. And I do want to touch on a related point. I don't know how much time we need to spend on it because I think we've covered a lot of ground, but uh, I was fascinated by this thing that you have called the multiplier effect, where you have science okay. times technology times culture equals innovation. And I think most people would be a little surprised by that culture piece, right? They always sort of get focused on the science and technology. <laughs> and you just talked about the importance of recruiting and the importance of bringing your whole self to work every day. But maybe talk a little bit about what that means to you to have those three things really rolling up to that innovation bucket. Yeah, so so um, uh, for sure, I'm a science nerd, and it was one of the other science nerds in my group who actually coined this multiplier phrase the first time, and then it sort of caught on um, as a phrase that that we continued with. Um, as a, as a mathematician, as a statistician, um, we know that if you have if you've got science times multiplied by technology, multiplied by culture, if you fail on any one of those three, then you're going to fail completely. You could be absolutely outstanding on science and on technology. But if you fail on the culture piece, ultimately, you get nowhere and vice versa with any one of those three. Yeah, I mean, I guess just doing math, if you multiply 100 times 100 times zero, it ends up being zero, right? So sometimes it comes down to simple math that even people like uh, me can do. Uh, this is the point in the show where I do like to shift gears a little bit and get a little bit more personal. Uh, there's a couple of questions that I usually ask, and I always love to see how people answer them. The first one is, imagine if, you know, we have a genie in a bottle, you could make one wish, you can, uh, you know, wish for anything. Uh, and I know as, as someone that comes from a science and math background, that probably feels a little kooky. Uh, but what would that wish be and why? There's so many ways you could answer it. Um, so I was reflecting back about uh, a very non-serious Sandra Bullock film I watched many years ago where she was an undercover cop at a beauty pageant. Um, you might I have seen it. And one of the running jokes in it that each contestant was asked what this same question and the answer that they were supposed to give was world peace. Um, but joking aside it doesn't feel like there could be a more important answer to the question than that right now. There's this global rise in 
hate crime, in distrust, in fear, in extremism, um, deliberate spread of misinformation, and, and yeah, extremism of so many types. Um, and I fear we're not learning the lessons from history, and and we have some very scary events in history that it would be a, just a travesty if we repeated them ever again. And honestly, that would be my wish, world peace. <laughs> well, I like it. And I, I think you're right. Normally it would feel a little bit Pollyanna. Uh, Miss Congeniality is the name of the movie. I just looked it that's up because right. I've Thank seen it. And remember that. <laughs> um, but it is one of those things that's so important. And I saw this quote that was equal parts uh, powerful and equal parts scary. But I think it was during the Senate confirmation hearings of our probably next Supreme Court judge here in the United States. And that was that I now understand 1938 Germany. And for anyone that isn't tracking on the timeline, this is the rise of Hitler in Germany and fascist Germany and what happened after that. And, you know, I think you're right. I would wish for that same thing is healthiness for everyone and world peace, because there just has never been a time where that's been more important on an even lighter note. And thank you for that answer. Uh, I do love to sort of hear how the people that um, are on the show answer this one. You're on a proverbial deserted island, right? So another suspend your belief. You can only bring one album with you. Don't worry about how it works. Uh, which album would you pick and why? This is a terrible question. It's one I've played at dinner parties with friends and I never uh, am able to answer this question because my my answer changes over time, depending on my mood, depending on what I'm listening to at that point. So um, I will pick an answer uh, with the caveat that if you ask me in another year, I could give you a completely different answer. But there's one album that I've been loving for the last couple of years. Um, and it's it's a not um, typical, it's a very atypical album by Joni Mitchell. So a long time ago now, but it's called Both Sides Now. And instead of her more typical um, style of song. It's much more jazz blues mix. And there's some really beautiful sad songs that just make you want to cry. There's some really beautiful, happy songs. So whatever that your mood you're in, um, there's something for you on this album, but it, it's, it's really a beautiful one. So that would be the one I would pick this year. So this is a perfect ending to the show because we started off asking how you got into uh, statistics and mathematics and you mentioned the certainty of it. And then you just answered your last question with, it's a very uncertain and very gray space, right? Which is part of why I like to ask because it is subjective across the board. There's not any one given answer. And I do the same thing. I have probably three or four answers that I always give. So. Um, with that, Sarah Hughes, uh, SVP and head of biostatistics at GSK. Thank you so much. This is Aaron Strout, the CMO of W2O and host of the What to Know podcast show. This has really been enjoyable, Sarah, and, and I loved all of your answers. So thank you. Likewise, Aaron. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Want more episodes of What to Know? We post a new episode every Thursday. Subscribe on iTunes, the podcast app, the Stitcher app, or Spotify, and view the podcast page at w2ogroup.com slash what to know.